2: from KQED.
0: Years and years of discrimination to add on with climate changes. Can you help us? Sea level rise. Floods uplifting high. Again, can you help us?
2: That's a 14-year-old poet named Lauren Mims. By the time Lauren reaches the middle of her life, her home in Marin City could be underwater. She and her neighbors driven out by flooding in their streets, and that's inspired her to write a poem to vent her rage.
0: When we speak, all you hear is gibberish. When we scream, you still decline. As yelling and expressing, can you help us to prevent this for us to survive?
2: Lauren is one of many climate activists that my colleague Ezra David Romero, KQED's climate reporter, has been following as he's been looking into the issue of sea level rise and how it could push contaminants into neighborhoods, especially places that are near former military or industrial sites. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on The California Report magazine, I'm going to talk with Ezra about his series called Sacrifice Zones. Hey there, Ezra.
1: Hey, Sasha.
2: So start by telling us what led you to want to report on this issue of contaminants being pushed into neighborhoods because of sea level rise.
1: Yeah, I cover sea level rise and how the Bay Area is adapting to this future crisis on our hands. You know, so I think about how communities are preparing for this. And last year, a UC Berkeley and UCLA report called "Toxic Tides" came out, showcasing a major warning for California. They say around a thousand toxic sites in California are in the path of future rising seas. You know, about half of these are concentrated in the Bay Area. You know, as the atmosphere warms and the water rises, those toxic sites could be flooded or inundated by rising sea levels. That could be from above ground or from underneath where the contamination is touched by that water. Other researchers think there could be way more than 500 here in the Bay Area because that data just looks at federal information. On the statewide level, there are also contaminated sites in Long Beach, Santa Barbara, Oxnard, and San Diego.
2: Ezra, why is there so much concentration of this kind of pollution, though, in the Bay Area?
1: Well, we have this legacy of industrialization. In the 1940s, in the World War II era, there were all these shipyards across the Bay Area where people built ships for the war.
3: Facilities were completed in 1944 to make Richmond shipyards the world's largest, covering 880 acres
2: and four and a half miles of waterfront.
1: Now people live near or even on top of that toxic contamination.
2: And you're relatively new to the Bay, Ezra, so you did something to get kind of a 360-degree view of this issue. You actually got out on a boat in the Bay.
1: Yeah, I went for this toxic tour with some scientists where they took me around the Bay to show me these sites of concern. Our first stop was in Bayview-Hunters Point in San Francisco. It's this community of 30,000 people that's historically Black and largely a community of color today. And the Navy experimented with... Um, atomic bombs out in the ocean and clean ships off there in this community. And the remnants of those contaminants are still there today. We're coming up on uh, Bayview-Hunters Point. With the tips of downtown buildings soaring behind us, Cole Birchall is showing me the old naval shipyard from a boat on the bay. Birchall is a field investigator for the environmental watchdog group SF Baykeeper. We're dealing with some of the worst contaminants you can imagine. Lead, arsenic, radioactive isotopes. The list goes on and on. He says the most immediate threat from sea level rise here isn't from flooding above, it's actually from underneath. Rising seas move inland on top of the land and underneath it. That pushes up groundwaters along with any contamination in the soil. They will infiltrate existing infrastructure that has a direct impact on people's homes.
2: Ezra, you've been covering climate change for for almost a decade now. Tell us about how you approach this series a little bit differently.
1: As a climate reporter for a while, I've often been the only POC, person of color, climate reporter in the areas I've been living in, Fresno and Sacramento. And I've wanted to tell stories about people of color as a person of color um, and sort of flip the narrative so we have People of color who are harmed most by the climate crisis or will be as the experts in the story because they're living this reality, the reality of climate change in their day to day lives.
2: Well, you have been covering climate, as you say, in places like the Valley and Sacramento for a while. In fact, you and I know each other from our time when we were both reporters in the Central Valley. And I wonder if you just want to mention a little bit about some of the climate change issues that you covered there and how it was different to start covering them in the Bay Area.
1: Yeah, when we met back in like 2012 when I started in the Central Valley in Fresno, I started covering the drought and that was that like multi-year long five-year drought where wells were going dry, farm worker communities, you know, were like having dry taps. Farmers were struggling with water and you're seeing all these fields fallowed. And then these big wildfires, like the age of mega fires started while I was there in um, Fresno we covered these wildfires. So it was sort of like climate change in action. The reality of climate change was all around us then I went to Sacramento and then moving to the bay area you know I found communities who may not be in the thick of like say these climate catastrophes like a wildfire or drought all around them but they're preparing for a slow moving future disaster called sea level rise because they're seeing that their lives could be affected just as much as the farm worker in the Central Valley or the person who lives in the mountains in the Sierra Nevada. And I realized, you know, the Bay Area isn't just this affluent place. There are these huge areas where people of color live, low-income people live, that are going to face the worst of sea level rise unless something is done about it.
2: Well, Bayview Hunters Point is a really key example of that. And in your reporting there, you met a dynamic activist who actually came to this work because of her own mother's death.
1: Sitting in church three years ago in Bayview-Hunters Point, Ariane Harrison accepted her calling. You find out a lot about yourself at a funeral. She took on her mother Marie Harrison's legacy of care through action.
4: What I learned in that moment is that love is an action word.
1: Her mother passed away from lung disease that she believed was tied to a job at the naval shipyard. She'd spent decades marching, protesting, and even chaining herself to the fence outside of this Superfund site.
4: I know they thought that it was going to go away once my mother was gone. In that moment, I did therapy
2: on the mic. When I
4: say what do we want, y'all say reparations. What do we want? Reparations!
1: When do we want it? Now!
2: What do we want? So she's talking about reparations there, Ezra, which is something we've heard a lot about here in California, you know, the movement for reparations for folks whose ancestors survived slavery or genocide. And usually when we talk about reparations, we think about that in terms of monetary reparations or land back. This is a slightly different take on that reparations question.
1: Yeah, I learned about this connection between reparations and the climate crisis by listening to communities. I went into these places as someone who's not from the Bay Area, and I wanted to understand how they're adapting or thinking about climate change. And they brought up reparations and climate change, reparations because they're living in parts of the Bay Area Um With a history of racism, with a history of redlining, where they were told you can't live in other parts of the city, you have to live in these parts. And this is the same reason why there's like freeways in certain parts of these towns and um, why these places are disinvested in. And so at the same time, they want to have a thriving future. And these are the same areas that are going to be flooded with contamination potentially. So they're seeing these two things, climate change and reparations, as synonymous.
2: Well, another one of those sites that is facing those challenges is West Oakland, which for folks who don't know, is historically a a huge shipping hub and port. Um, It's a place that, as you say, has been cut off by freeways and kind of isolated. It's one of the poorest parts of Oakland. And that's where you met another really dynamic activist, Margaret Gordon.
1: Margaret Gordon sits on a park bench in front of her apartment as semi-trucks crawl the street and a BART train zips by. She tells me climate justice must mean reparations. To me, the reparation movement is the next level of civil rights. For Gordon, reparations mean more than payment to the descendants of slaves. They mean actions that restore consent to the community, like cleaning up toxic sites and giving residents power in climate policy.
4: We will have long-standing sustainability. I would know that there's going to be housing for my, for my children, grandchildren, it's going to be a job for them.
1: At a shoreline park sandwiched amidst heavy industry, I meet with UC Berkeley professor Maya Quersquillo. She says actions that return consent to the community could equal freedom from the tendrils of slavery.
4: The full freedom to say, I can leave or I can stay or I have the freedom and the values and the finances to actually be able to make that future.
1: Quersquillo says Gordon and others are working to create this alternate future. They
4: are taking the problem into their own hands. It's forcing change.
1: Much of that change originates from inside Gordon's West Oakland office, a tan portable behind a chain-link fence nestled in a curve of Interstate 880. Looking for Miss Margaret? Yeah. Awards honoring her decades of environmental justice work line the inner walls of her office. At 75 years old, Gordon says she won't stop working toward a thriving future here.
4: Thrive with me. I may start it off as I, but at the end of the day, this is about a we.
1: Miss Margaret Gordon is the co-founder of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. That's an organization that's community-based and they're dedicated to achieving healthy homes, healthy jobs, and healthy neighborhoods for everybody who lives in West Oakland. You know, they've done a lot of research, and their community research, especially about air quality, has fueled legislation and policy in both the city of Oakland and has extended out statewide. One of the things that struck me in this reporting is this idea of consent. Ms. Margaret Gordon is the one who brought it up to me. She talked about how these current residents in these areas didn't consent to have their lives derailed by climate change. They didn't consent to have their lives derailed by freeways, and they didn't consent to be redlined and to live in the cities and the places that they live in. You know, They wanted a different life, but the rules placed on them because of racism, that kept them from having these thriving lives in other ways. And so they didn't consent to all of this. And so when we think about how we move forward when it comes to climate change and cleaning up these places, Miss Margaret Gordon says we need to think about the consent of the people who live there as well.
2: Well, one of the immediate impacts people are already feeling is the fact that people are getting sick from pollution and contamination even before we're seeing the kind of sea level rise you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and that brings us back to reparations. You know, many of the people I talked to brought up this point, like, we're going to need money. We're going to need reparations for the sicknesses we're getting and are going to continue to get for the medical bills we're going to have because we live next to a toxic site.
2: And you actually visited a clinic where you saw some of those health effects firsthand in Bayview-Hunters Point in San Francisco.
1: Dr. Ahimsa Porter-Sumchai is showing me how black and brown lives matter using pins on a map. Hello. How are you doing? Hello Good, here. how are you? Come on, right? Dr. Porter <laughs> Sumchai is heart. testing residents' urine for contaminants. Here in her office, she's posted a large map, and on it, it's covered with red, blue, black, yellow, and white pushpins. They're like ants piled up on a piece of food. Each pin is a toxic chemical in somebody at levels high enough to harm their health.
2: There's a woman here who's got uranium 17 times higher than reference range.
1: Finding that level of such a dangerous contaminant shocked her.
2: Just set my hair on fire. I had never seen anything like that.
1: A second map lists the people in the neighborhood who have cancer. Cancer and contaminant data go into the California Cancer Registry to document a relationship between illness and toxic exposure.
4: The more
3: pins we place in this map and in that map, the greater the
4: liability. I think this is genius to know that we've been carrying around as much evidence in our bodies, the one place they refuse to
1: look. Ariane Harrison got tested in 2021. She discovered a list of contaminants at levels dangerous for her health.
4: Magnum, volume. she says Magnum. her hair
1: is falling out. Animalium. Her feet feel Magnum. pins and needles, and her body retains fluid.
4: My thoughts was
1: if it's in me, it's in somebody else. Ariane Harrison's recruiting others to get tested. She hopes this growing mountain of evidence will be enough to convince city leaders to do something about all this and to value all Black and Brown lives here.
2: Ezra, how unusual is it for folks to do this kind of testing for contamination on their own bodies?
1: You know, this is a growing field called biomonitoring. It's expensive, and so not a lot of communities do it, also because it's time-consuming. You know, they're taking these samples, and the onus is on them because they want the change, they want the data, and they want to, like, force change and force, like, city leaders to pay attention to them.
2: But not every community has access to that kind of data about how people are getting sick from contamination.
1: Yeah, one of those communities that doesn't is Marin City, north of San Francisco.
2: It's also primarily a Black community, right? With with a shipyard and a legacy of this World War II manufacturing.
1: Yeah, Marin City is this, like, bowl of a town north of San Francisco, five miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a community of around, like, 3,000 people um, right next to Highway 101, and it's a historically black community. And black people moved here from the south um, during the 1940s to build ships in in the shipyard there.
3: Nestled at the foot of beautiful Mount Tamalpais on the shores of San Francisco Bay. This was the site for America's finest shipyard, a salt marsh and a rocky hill.
1: So they know that the shipyard was near their community, and they think that the contamination in their community is from there, but they're not exactly sure because they don't have the data to back that up. You know, they've mapped out where they believe pollution is, and they don't have the funds or state support to test that, much less the money to test their own bodies, you know, even though they have community lore about people getting sick and getting cancer in their community. You know... They are worried about sea level rise in their future and how contaminants could move around as the seas rise. But it's not just a worry about sea level rise there. They're already having these big atmospheric river storms that cause flooding. And there's concerns that those floodwaters could also have contamination in it. We stay swimming. Chinaka Green and her son waded through knee deep water, trying to get home. Just coming from a football game and we stuck in a puddle. She told me the floodwaters mixed with sewage gushing from a utility hole.
4: It freaked me out. We took off everything and put it in the bag and threw it away.
1: Storms like this are a precursor of what's to come in the climate crisis, more severe downpours and surging seas. Both are consequences of burning fossil fuels globally. By the end of the century, sea level rise could flood half of all commercial properties in Marin City and inundate homes. One person who's worried about this and sounding the alarm over the lack of investment here is Terry Harris-Green.
3: We all know about what happened October the 24th with the atmospheric river, right? All of this flooding, three and a half, four feet of flooding. The IJ didn't put it in the paper. Oh, no. They put in the paper that other places had 12 inches. But what about the three and a half, four feet that we've had? What about that? What about the fact that folks had to walk through the contaminated waters in order to get back home? What about that?
1: Terry was speaking in a rally last spring. She's really passionate about all this because she had cancer herself, and she believes the cancer is linked to contamination near her home.
3: Too many of our folks have been dying. Too much sickness and disease is happening and been happening in our community.
1: Terry's the daughter of one of those families that came to work in the shipyards. Her family came from Texas and she was raised in this community. And now she's in her 70s and she's heard the, the firsthand stories from people in her community who have had cancer, who have had other sicknesses, who have had asthma. And she's also lived through like years and years of flooding.
3: You all saw that manhole that looked like a waterfall coming up. That was sewage. And our folks had to walk through that to get home. That's contaminated water. And you know what, we speak about it, and you know what, I think sometimes it goes in one ear and it just goes, I don't know where it goes. But you do not see folks stepping forward and saying, you know what, enough is enough. 80 years of flooding, we are tired of it. There's no drainage system there. Talking about reparations? We need reparations here in
1: Marin City. Terry's movement is really multi-generational. It's not just her. She's working with a group of young people to lobby and advocate on behalf of Marin City. They got together and they sent a letter to Governor Gavin Newsom, including some of the poem we heard from Laura Mims earlier.
0: Generations and ongoing generations. And yet we still can't find the missing key to the equation.
1: Lauren read me that poem on a hike we took up the hill above Marin City. It was a beautiful, bright day. You could see Alcatraz. You could see San Francisco. You could see the Bay Bridge. It looks like a painting. Yeah, when you look around here, you like you see Marin City. You can see that it's a lot of apartments, a lot of like a little bowl here, and then you can like see the affluence around here, like all the mansions, big houses. How does it make you feel like um, looking at that and knowing how your town is treated, how you how you're treated?
0: I'm not going to lie. I'm like ashamed because they don't deal with the climate issues that we do and they they don't do no- anything about it. For us, we have to deal with it every day. We have to struggle.
1: You know, they also want their county leaders to be more accountable here to not just wealthy parts of Marin. You know, this is Marin County, one of the wealthiest counties in all of California. So they think it's okay. It's it's serious risk that these people are dealing with, and it should be dealt with.
2: Ezra, in any of the communities that you've been reporting in, have we seen any movement towards leaders at either the city or the county level tackling this issue head on?
1: In Marin City, Ms. Terry Harris-Green and these climate activists, their work is sort of paying off. They've lobbied state leaders and congresspeople are paying attention to this, and they're hopefully trying to create some kind of plan to address this flooding. It's still up in the air, but they are paying attention. In Bayview-Hunters Point in San Francisco, there was a recent report from the San Francisco Civil Grand Jury that found the city has not accounted for the serious risk that sea-level rise could spread toxic contamination throughout this community. Here's Ariane Harrison. She's the woman who was inspired by her mother's activism there.
4: This is very validating. I want to invite our mayor, whom we love, to show us that she loves us back.
1: San Francisco Mayor London Breed denied requests for interviews for that story in a statement Officials said they welcomed the grand jury report and are seeking funding to study how groundwater rise could affect known contaminated sites.
2: Well, and it sounds like, meanwhile, residents are still really concerned about their health and the contamination in Bayview Hunters Point, and they haven't stopped protesting.
1: We are here and we want to
2: stay. Tanya
1: Randell is a longtime resident of Bayview Hunters Point. She spoke at a rally last winter demanding reparations in the form of economic investment. She's unhappy that so much industry and public utilities are in her neighborhood. Things like a sewage plant and a garbage dump.
4: Why is it all in our area? Because they don't value us.
1: I took Randell's question to UC Berkeley professor Maya Guedesquillo. We met on the Oakland shoreline with Bayview-Hunter's Point in the distance. What do you think it'll take for San Francisco to value black and brown people in that community? That's such an interesting
4: question because cities like San Francisco, especially with a black female mayor, <laughs> right,
1: like, would argue that they do. Quedasquillo is an Afro-Latina woman and a civil and environmental engineering professor focused on environmental justice.
4: I think it's going to first take us reconciling that when we say black lives matter, it is all black lives. It's the black lives that are uncomfortable for us to have to
2: still actually do the work to say that they matter. So, Ezra, in your reporting, you've introduced us to so many activists and academics, you know, a lot of folks of color who are super passionate about this issue, but it sounds like there are still so many hurdles. What do you see as the path forward and what can people do to get involved with this struggle around sea level rise and contamination?
1: When I met with these community members, they told me they're not going to stop asking board of supervisors and city leaders to pay attention to this. So I think there's plenty of opportunities for people to join them and to, like, go to those meetings, whether they're on Zoom or in person, and to ask their leaders to pay attention to this emerging issue. And that's really working when it comes to Bayview-Hunter's Point. You know, this summer... Um, The Board of Supervisors held two hearings on this issue, and as a result, they're asking for an independent scientific review, and they also want an independent community member panel that's sort of like an oversight panel over this project as well. So there's a lot of positive work going on there.
2: Ezra, you know, you talk to people whose family members were sickened by some of this contamination. Uh, You talk to people who really feel a lot of rage uh, and are pretty despondent about the future of their communities what was it like for you as a reporter to do some of these interviews sounds like they might have been pretty emotional at times
1: yeah i mean during part of this reporting like i thought i was depressed at one point and i was telling my boyfriend that like oh my gosh i'm like sad and he's like you're listening to some really hard stories you're hearing about other people of color who are black or Mexican or Asian, but like they're also people of color like you. So like you're feeling what they're feeling.
2: Well, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, this is all against the backdrop of scientists who are worried that we're not going to see emissions reductions at the level we need. And so sea level rise is going to continue. I mean, this is sort of the most tangible threat along the coast of California when it comes to climate change. Yeah,
1: and that's really why they were even doing these studies, right? They want to showcase how many sites could be inundated. They're showing like the... The time frame of when that's gonna happen, so leaders and the state can pay attention to this and do something about it before the water rises up. And all these communities are doing this work at the same time, right? They're slogging through data, they're attending meetings, they're holding leaders accountable. Like it's just like slowly trudging along that's pushing this issue forward, and it's making big change in some places, like in Bayview Hunters Point, with the whole city paying attention to this, you know. This idea of, like, this shifting power dynamics is creating what UC Davis professor Beth Rose Middleton Manning calls a geography of hope. A geography of hope is very much about people's
0: relationship to their place and envisioning how to get out of difficult
1: situations. You know, she's one of the BIPOC experts I reached out to for this story. She's Black and a professor of Native American Studies at UC Davis. She told me envisioning means being very practical
0: very practical work to make what has been seen as impossible, say, for example, jurisdiction over the local landscape by the community members or cleaning up a very toxic site. The Geography of Hope is the practice of making that real.
1: In other words, this practical work is reparations in action, and that's the path forward people see so they can thrive even as the climate continues to warm.
2: Ezra, thank you so much for sharing this reporting and for tackling an issue that's so intense and so urgent, but also sharing the stories of how people are making a change in their communities and for themselves.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Ezra David Romero is KQED's climate reporter. You can read more of his series, Sacrifice Zones, about sea level rise and contamination at kqed.org slash reparations. And that's it for the California Report Magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our director. Brendan Willard is our engineer. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. Ezra's stories were edited by Katrin Snow, Kevin Stark, and Otis R. Taylor Jr. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories.